Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. As you know, if you've been listening for a while, I'm not just a creativity coach. I'm also a writer, editor, and proofreader, which is why I was so excited to talk with Curtis Honeycutt, author of Good Grammar is the Life of the Party. Curtis writes the award-winning Grammar Guy column that appears in 30 newspapers, aiming to help people conquer their grammar demons in a way that's fun, accessible, and definitely not modeled after the stereotypical high school English teacher. This conversation is a little word nerdier than most, as you might imagine. We talk about dictionaries, why the English language is such a hodgepodge, why local newspapers are so important, grammar controversies and how they're like religious differences, and the fact that North Dakota really does exist, just in case you weren't sure. Here's my conversation with Curtis Honeycutt. Curtis Honeycutt, I have been so looking forward to talking to you because I just feel like we are birds of a feather. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thanks. Me too. So I, I love that, that your book is called Good Grammar is the Life of the Party because I am I, I, you sent me a word nerd sticker along with this book and I feel like this morning I was thinking I should just have it right here on my forehead because as soon as I saw that I was like, yeah, that would be me. That would be me. <laughs> so well, I suppose you could probably get it as a tattoo. I don't know if people are still doing <laughs> tattoos right now or what the situation is with that industry. but I would imagine it's not great. Awful lot of close proximity with that. Yep. I, yeah, I would I would think if you want a tattoo right now, and, and it's it's March 21st as we're recording this, um, I would think you probably have a problem. And I don't think I'm going to go quite that far, but... Fair enough. But anyway, so I'm, I'm curious to know how you got into words and writing in the first place. Was this like, were you always the precocious kid who was reading the dictionary or just lots of books or something else. Yeah, so I wasn't not the precocious kid reading the dictionary. I do have a really nice, like, thick, hardback, red-covered uh, version of the Merriam-Webster dictionary that I got in high school, and I still have it, and it's just nice, and, you know, when it, it sits on the shelf, and it's red, so all of my books are actually uh, sorted by color, um, but I know where they are. Anyway, um, one of those Pinterest things. Um, so I have always been a writer, always been a creative writer, um, but not necessarily as my job, although I would like to work toward that eventually. Um, and this book is a big step in that direction. But about two and a half years ago, my local newspaper, they put out a call for basically auditions. And they said, we are looking for a person to write a, a column for, about grammar and send us your best thing 400 words or less and I said I know about grammar I'll give that a try and so I, as I was thinking about it I was thinking you know what um, this could be pretty boring and mm -hmm. or and or judgy you know as soon mm -hmm. as you um, self-identify as a grammar expert people automatically assume that you're a Nazi which I don't know how we jump to Nazi so fast but um, I think it's because people, you know, talk about being the grammar police and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, I was thinking, well, how can I write this in a way that no one else is going to write it? 
Um, so I said, I'm going to write it my way, which is um, approachable and positive and hopefully funny um, so that when people read it, they don't feel like they're being uh, judged for their grammar being subpar, um, but they feel like they're being encouraged to make their life a little bit better by making their grammar better. So I've, I've written that now for about two and a half years in my local newspaper, and as I went on, I um, pitched other editors, kind of regional editors, and some of them put um, my uh, Grammar Guy articles into their newspapers, and then I just said, well, I'm going to uh, send, uh, send emails to a bunch of editors and pitch them, and so now I'm in about 30 newspapers around the country. Sweet. Um, and I used those articles as a kind of a basis for this book and strung them together, reworked them, added introductions, added kind of some personal essay, memoir things along the way, just because I wanted to have a book that was not just uh, dry and here's what I wrote on January 1st and followed by January 8th. It's right. more like here, um, I want to string it together and actually have it read a little bit as like a narrative. So like you're following on this journey of good grammar and things can get better and you're also being entertained along the way. So um, yeah, I'm hoping that this is something that people can pick up and learn from, but also be entertained by. I think you've probably hit that mark. I mean, I can only speak for myself and I am certainly the kind of person who would sit down and read a book about grammar. So I might be a little biased, <laughs> but because I was also the kid, and, and I still am the kid, who if you give me the opportunity and an open dictionary and half an hour with nothing else to do, I will literally sit down and read the dictionary, but not necessarily in order. You know, I'll flip between, oh, what about this word? Where did this word come from? The Oxford English Dictionary, when I heard that it existed and was 24 volumes of like the entire history of every word, mm. I, I just was... You know, after I picked myself up off the floor, I was like, I have to see this thing, you know, ran mm -hmm. off to the university library and started flipping through it. I find stuff like that fascinating. And and that's where I went back when I think it was the first season of Downton Abbey aired. And there was this whole kerfuffle because Violet, who, of course, got all the good lines in Downton Abbey, very forcefully told someone to put that in your pipe and smoke it. And I saw all of this commentary online about how that's anachronistic. She never would have said that. And the next day at work, I was like, OED, come here. You know, and I pulled it up online and, and there it was. And it was a much older phrase than most people realize. And, you know, you can find that stuff out because it's the OED. There were a couple other things I think that she said in that show that got me wondering. But yeah, it turns out put, put that in your pipe and smoke. It did not originate with Snoop Dogg, but. <laughs> Although he he has coined phrases of his own. So the English language is fascinating because we get the English language, like the words that comprise the English language from hundreds of world languages. And uh, there are huge differences between British English and American English. And I wrote about that a little bit, uh, talking of downtown, Downton Abbey, not Downtown Abbey. Um, Noah Webster, the great American dictionary writer guy, had some crazy ideas of how to make spelling a lot more simple. And he, um, a lot of them didn't work. Like he wanted to spell soup, S-O-O-P, and tongue, 
T-U-N-G. Now, that's how it sounds, but that didn't actually catch on. But a lot of his words that did catch on, like color, C-O-L-O-R, or canceled with one L instead of two L's, which is a word that we're seeing a lot these days, um, those did catch on. And so he came up with the one of the first uh, American comprehensive dictionaries, which he called Webster's Dictionary. And then after he passed, um, the Merriam brothers bought the rights to uh, his dictionary. Now we have the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So not that you asked, but there's some uh, little dictionary history for you. Yeah, I, I've every once in a while I'm reminded of Noah Webster, and I look at some of his stuff, and it's I, I think tongue is a particularly ugly spelling. The way he would have done it, I'm I'm glad we kept the one we have. Not that anyone asked me, but <laughs> but you're reminding me of my my very favorite definition of the English language, which comes from the Urban Dictionary, and is. English, a language that lurks in dark alleys, beats up other languages, and rifles through their pockets for spare vocabulary. Nice. I like that. I I saw that maybe 15 years ago and thought, that is the most accurate definition of English I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) So you're writing for 30 papers. Uh It's amazing to me because, you know, newspapers are kind of dying. Has it been hard to find newspapers that are actually interested first of all in a grammar column but has it have you seen from the inside how that whole newspaper dying phenomenon is working is are yeah, they the, more interested maybe because it's not the typical news yeah so the industry is certainly rough and especially right now um kind of after our first full week of social distancing um, because of coronavirus uh for instance actually in the last two days two of my 30 newspapers have had to suspend my column, not because I said anything inappropriate, but because they're anticipating their um, ad revenue going down and they're going to have to print fewer pages in their newspaper. So two of my paying um, newspaper clients have had to bail, which, which stinks. Um, But uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. But in general, the, the newspaper industry, so I, actually serve on the board of the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. And there used to be wow. far more, there used to be far more uh, staff columnists for a paper. And now that's like a unicorn job to mm. get to get to be a like salaried columnist. So most, most uh, columnists are freelancers and it's, yeah, it's a struggle just to be a freelance columnist. And I don't know, anyone who does that full time except for like a, you know, Dave Barry type person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Um, but in general, the newspaper industry has definitely had a hard go of it over the last few years. And only a few newspapers, which are, are, are big ones like New York times have figured out a, a, uh, model that, that works. Um, but, um, for our local newspapers, you know, I feel like reporting on um, city council meetings and where there are potholes that need to be fixed and high school football games, that kind of stuff is stuff that we need and it's important information. And uh, without local newspapers, we won't get it. So um, I'm hoping that we can figure out some kind of model that works that people will still pay for and engage in. Um, But so far, I I haven't figured it out. So let me know if you think of an idea that works. (laughs) 
if if the solution comes to me in a dream, I'll let you know. But but yeah, one of the things that really surprised me a couple of years ago was hearing that you know local papers are the ones who go after the town council for not doing what they're supposed to be doing uh-huh. or you know or for the things that they should be doing i mean e- either way it goes both ways but um you know and the, the local mayor the public works department all all of that kind of stuff that a lot of people tend to think is boring and overlook and and maybe it is but if if people are not doing what they're supposed to do on a local level, somebody needs to hold them accountable. And when those local papers aren't there, it's much less likely that that's actually going to happen. Yeah. And even like, so I, I live just north of Indianapolis. So we have the Indy Star, which is a big one. There's also the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette up in Fort Wayne, which is big. And then like the Times of Northwest Indiana, which is up in Chicagoland. So I happen to appear in um, those last two. Um, but if we just had those three regional Indiana papers, then no one would know what's going on in Frankfurt, Indiana or Noblesville, Indiana or uh, Valparaiso, you know, like these these places where we do need to know what the mayor's talking about, what the city council is talking about and um, who is, you know, school board stuff. You know, it's, it's important stuff that I know that we can figure out digitally, but um, how do we best engage with people and, you know, do people care? I don't know. That's that's really a core question right there. And I don't know the answer either, but I would hope that we care. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I've got a friend who his job is to write for theathletic.com, and he gets to cover the Kansas City Chiefs, which is like a dream job for him because he's been doing it the last two years. And this past year he got to go to the Super Bowl mm-hmm. with, with the team, and they won the game. And so he got to cover a Super Bowl-winning season for um, – the chiefs and so the athletic their their model is basically saying okay here are big metro areas and here we're going to cover all the sports teams and you're going to pay to read good sports writing from your local teams now people do it it's like six bucks a month and they've figured that out but that's just sports now i don't know if you're going to (laughs) be be able to to find someone who's like oh man i'm really itching to pay 10 bucks a month to know what's going on with my municipal government. Um, But maybe we'll figure something out along those lines. I mean, Jeff Bezos, he's doing all right and he owns the Washington post. Maybe he'll figure something out. (laughs) Maybe we can hope so. I think, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder about things like Jeff Bezos owning the Washington post, though he seems to be letting them do what they need to do. So I'm all right with that part. So I, I'm wondering, you know, you said you were always a writer. What did that look like when you were younger? Yeah, so when I was younger, um, I loved any kind of creative writing class that I could take. Um, my friends and I, my friends and I would stay up late at sleepovers and write scripts for movies, quote unquote, that we would make, and we would stay up all night filming them and editing them, and you know, whether or not it started with a script and ended with those same words on the page um, <laughs> is irrelevant, but you know, it started with good ideas. And then in high school and college, I wrote a lot of poetry and I was an English major for a semester. And then I switched to religious studies because I really wanted to um, be totally broke in both industries. So, <laughs> um, so far so good. And yeah, as what's interesting is once um, my wife and I had, kids. So we've got a six-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. I found that 
you have to really make time for the thing that you want to do if it's not your day job, right? Mm-hmm. And it was it's nice to have something like a weekly column to have to write because I yeah. have a deadline and, and a word count and I have a subject. So I've got a nice defined box um, in which to play and that really makes it nice because I I write usually Sunday nights because it's due Monday morning, of course. So Sunday <laughs> night I'll, I'll write my column for the week and then Monday morning I'll send it to all my editors. Um, and having that time, which is not much, um, it, it, it scratches the itch. And hopefully I'll continue to build on that. Obviously taking um, that column time and then turning it into book time required a lot more time. And um, it's one of those things where you will make the time for the thing that you really want to do. And so I made the time to do that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It can be hard to make the time for it, but it also, and I think this is a big part of why people end up not making the time for it. I think that we have this sense of priorities that says that that stuff's not important or not as important as all of these other things, which may be true. I mean, you, you do need to find a way to pay your bills and keep a roof over your head and feed yourself and your kids if you have kids and walk the dog and, you know, all of all of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when we deprioritize our creative stuff, we forget why we loved it in the first place. And I think an awful lot of people forget that, you know, this really brings me joy. This lights me up. That's important too. And, and so if you, if you get that far away from it, that you've completely forgotten how it makes you feel, then it's so much easier not to make time for it because you're like, oh yeah, someday I'm going to write this book. Someday. But when you've actually started doing Absolutely. it again, and it keeps you going. At a, at a certain point I wrote in, it was either I wrote it in pencil or is on some note on my phone and I can't find it anymore, but I had started a bucket list. Now clearly it wasn't something that was important enough for me to keep. But on that list I said, you know what, it would be cool to have a, a column in a newspaper someday because I am basically an 80-year-old in a 30-something <laughs> body. I said, I would love to have a, a newspaper column someday. So um, when the opportunity presented itself, I said, hey, I could write about grammar. And turns out I really enjoy grammar. I, I think I'm naturally good at it, but I don't know why. And so that's what Dr. Google is for. So I do lots of research. I've gotten uh, quite a few books at this point uh, as far as reference books. And the crazy thing about grammar, so there there is black and white in grammar, but there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of stylistic choices that people make depending on if you um, subscribe to the AP's rules or the Chicago uh, style book rules or even the New York Times they have their own set of rules Um, but it's it's great to get all those books or all those resources out and go okay what do you say about you know where do you put punctuation where when there's quotation marks and then everyone kind of says something slightly different and then you figure out here's what I think about that. Here we go. Let's write about it and maybe think of an engaging way to introduce that topic to people. Usually, usually, um, I don't know if you've caught, um, in my book, I talk about my friend Byron a lot. Mm-hmm. I have changed the name in order to protect the identity of my friend Byron, to protect but Byron, the <laughs> yeah, 
Byron isn't bad at grammar, but what he's bad about is buying into crazy conspiracy theories. And I've obviously uh, exaggerated it for the book, but um, he's, I'm going to have him write a blurb for the for the front of the book. Not like the cover. I'm not going to give him cover status, but he will get a blurb um, because he may or may not believe that the moon landing happened. And when I have a friend who... <laughs> Who, who legitimately doesn't think that the moon landing happened. I got to put that in my book about grammar. And so mm-hmm. I made it work. Wow. Yeah. That must be an interesting relationship. Cause For it sure. sounds like that's not the only thing he doesn't believe in. No, he may or may not think that Paul McCartney is dead and that there's a uh, body double who has been impersonating him since the late sixties. Wow. I'm not saying he does or doesn't. He may or may not. So Elvis might still be alive too. Who knows? He might be. <laughs> he might be pulling the strings behind the Illuminati or something. I have no idea. Maybe. Wow. Well, and you know, it's very interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a difference between grammar and style. And since you mentioned AP and Chicago, which are two things that I work with too, um, yeah, everybody has their own their own guidelines for how certain things should be handled. Like for instance, in my office, we've just gone in the last year, maybe two from Chicago to AP. So I don't work for a newspaper and I don't work for a book publisher. And, and so we're sort of in this weird gray area where not everything applies. So we had been using Chicago which makes a little bit more sense for us. We're a university communications office, so we deal with all sorts of different stuff, things that may end up in um, newspapers, but also things that might not. And we switched because the main university communications office does everything in AP because they release things to the press and all that kind of stuff. And it was just easier not to have to go through and convert everything and stuff like that. But what I've been discovering in, in that time is not just that AP doesn't really deal with things that we deal with, like event invitations. So there's nothing in the AP style book to help you out with an event invitation. Or sure. you know certain things like that that they just they're they're not going to deal with, but um, they also and and so for that stuff we'll revert back to to Chicago, which is intended more for like book publishing things like that. But they they do things that to me in in my brain you know they they put spaces around m dashes and I'm going to bet that a lot of people who listen to this don't even know what an m dash is so an m dash is that it's the long dash the long yeah. dash the one that you probably type with two hyphens on your keyboard um they put as spaces around it as opposed to an it. n dash so an m dash is roughly the same width as a lowercase m mm-hmm. and the n dash is roughly the same width as a lowercase n and I'm, I'm looking at my keyboard right now going, it's probably the same difference with an uppercase or a lowercase. But probably. think of a, uh, the M dash is the wider one because an M is wider and the N dash is slightly uh, shorter. Yeah. And then there's the dash and the hyphen just to keep everybody confused all the time. Yeah. And they all have different purposes. And now I'm imagining people listening to this going, who can keep track of all this? Well, people who get paid to do what I do keep track of all of this. For sure. And so one thing, so uh, newspapers all go by AP standards. And so, for instance, one thing that I always have to stop myself and then actually 
when I was formatting my book, I had to undo is they uh, AP uses italics for nothing. Right. They, they put quote quotation marks around everything, and so for full titles of books, they put quotation marks. For movies, they put quotation marks. And it, it to me, it it's weird, and I don't like it. But thirty minus two now twenty eight editors expect it to be in that format because they right. don't have time to fix the grammar guy's uh, punctuation on. Yeah, they're not <laughs> on... going to appreciate you if you don't do that homework. Right, but. Um, but man, I love italics. I love to use them for emphasis or writing words as words in italics or like I said, uh, book titles or movie titles, things like that, that were, that maybe we grew up when we were writing papers mm -hmm. underlined. So, right. so things change. And even with, so do you want to talk about a controversial punctuation real quick? Sure. Let's just put this baby to bed, shall we? Um, <laughs> so you probably know where I'm going with this. And, and I think, if you're going to get emails or comments or uh, Instagram comments disagreeing with me on one thing, it's going to be about the Oxford comma. Oh, bring it. Bring it. So, I have a definite opinion about the Oxford comma. So the Oxford <laughs> or serial comma, to, to quickly explain it or refresh people's minds on it who don't think about this all the time like like we do, um, is when you have a list of three or more things. So you could say, um, I like to eat, comma, shop, and fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, so if you notice, I only put a comma after uh, between eat and shop, and I didn't put one under fight. Now, the Oxford comma would say you put a comma between all those things to keep them separate and not confuse people. Now, I'm down with not confusing people. And, and a lot of people think that AP style says the serial comma, the Oxford comma, don't do it. And it actually doesn't say that. The AP states, and I agree with this very gray area, where it says use commas when necessary. And if you need to use an Oxford comma in order to make things less confusing, then put it in. But in general, they say use commas sparingly only when needed. They don't want um, your uh, your prose to be interrupted by too much punctuation. And so I agree with that, which is not to not use Oxford commas ever, but only use them when necessary. And definitely if, you know, if if you say, you know, let's eat grandma or whatever, you know, you've seen the, the memes online. Um, anyway, so I, I am, I am towing the line between not doing it and doing it. Um, do it when necessary. I would love to hear Nancy, your thoughts on this because you probably disagree <laughs> with me and I'm I totally do. fine with that. <laughs> I totally do. I, I think that it is always clear and therefore why, why question it? Why have the gray area? Just always use it. Well, um, I think, I think we live, we live in the gray. That's that, I mean, to get philosophical with you, um, we live in the gray and that's, what's great about grammar is that, um, you know, the, I don't, I don't think my book, honestly, Nancy, I don't think my book is for people who, um, want, give me the letter of the law. Tell me how to grammar. Yeah. Cause <laughs> that's order. what we have I AP just, in Chicago just, for. Right. Yeah. This is not a reference book. It is a 
it is a, a little bit of a style book. It's a little bit of a, you know, use this word, not that word. Here's how to spell it. Here's what punctuation to use. And also, um, I think more just as much as it is that, it is about how to approach grammar in a way that lifts everyone up. A rise, uh, <laughs> the rising tide lifts all ships kind of situation. Because there's enough good grammar for everyone out there. It's not a, in limited supply. And so... For, yes. for instance, I mean, we don't, I don't think we need to be as careful as we, as we think we need to be in more casual situations. So in casual conversation, or if you're just sending a text to a friend. Now, it is a slippery slope, and we can get lazy, and we have gotten lazy, and we're trending toward not even emojis anymore, but just um, animated GIFs, not GIFs, but GIFs, um, and... However, I do write uh, frequently in the book, and I remind people, you know, if you're writing something more formal, if this is your um, resume or a cover letter, or if you're writing a doctoral dissertation, then use the formal, um, the formal phrases, the, the official rules and things like that. But I, I think we need to lighten up a little bit and definitely not correct our friend's grammar unless we are you know, in a one-on-one -on -one situation where we can lovingly say, hey, I heard you um, saying, where did you put that at? And you really shouldn't end your sentence with a preposition. And, you know, I, I think that is, that is in a one-on-one -on -one appropriate situation, it is okay to correct someone's grammar and point them in the right direction. But man, if you're at a party and you say, um, excuse me, you... Uh, you ended your you ended your sentence in a preposition. Believe me, you will have no friends. So, you, do you, you want won't. do you want to do you want to have good do you want to have friends or do you want to correct people's grammar? You have to pick. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that completely. I think, and and I think you know there, there's an inherent difference between the way we speak and the way we write. When you're writing, sure. you don't have things like tone of voice and facial expression and all of that kind of stuff. And it's probably a more formal situation. So you want to be a little bit more formal. But when we speak, we, we break rules all the time. If we saw a transcript of how we speak, and I've been in the process of having some of these conversations that I've had transcribed, and you can see, you can see like what I just did right there. I, I stopped <laughs> one thought, I started another. If you did that in writing your reader would give up on you but we do it all the time in speech because we we know that the other person is following us and and that they're you know unless we've really seriously screwed up they're going to get there with us in the end even if we change gears in the middle of a sentence even if we trip over a word and we haven't finished this thought and then we realize we need to say something different about it so it's it's a different it's a different beast entirely and i think I'm actually sitting here thinking that it's fascinating to me that you switched from an English major to religious studies because between <laughs> between the Oxford comma controversy and the <laughs> deep denominational differences between AP and Chicago. And and I mean, I I don't like AP for a lot of what we do because I feel like it doesn't fit as well as Chicago does at work. And so some of the things that it it, it wants us to do just kind of make me nuts. And some of them don't make sense to me, like spaces around an M dash. But, it, you know, The Onion has a, a little, you know, one of their little satire pieces about the ongoing war between AP and Chicago. And it exists for a reason, even though only people who work with AP in Chicago will really grasp that piece. 
But I do. I feel like we do. We get into these places where it is like a an almost religious thing. And, it, you know, I realized several years ago, I heard someone say everyone is a fundamentalist about something. For sure. And at first I thought, no, no, I'm not a fundamentalist about anything. And I think it took me maybe 10 seconds before I thought, oh, yes, I am. I am definitely a fundamentalist about grammar. OK, point taken. I get it. I'll, <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so uh, so do you remember um, before uh, Stephen Colbert had the late show, he had the Colbert report before mm-hmm. a report um, on Comedy Central. And, and he his character that he had was was this. Um, he was basically an evangelist for uh, conservative uh, American politics. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan is our, you know, messianic figure, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously he was funny about it and there was satire there because he um, didn't necessarily ascribe to that view in real life. Um, so in, in, a, in the same way, I am, I'm evangelistic about good grammar, but to have a certain posture about it. So I don't want you to hear me say I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just write whatever the heck you want and talk however the heck you want and everything's fine. Um, because that is, uh, relativism that's, uh, postmodernism at its, at its worst. Um, yeah, to get the religion into it and the philosophy a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I really, I really do think that by having good grammar and at the beginning of each of these sections of my book, I, I cite studies that say, um, if uh, there's a study, for instance, of uh, LinkedIn users in a certain um, in a certain job uh, sector, where the people who had fewer grammar errors in their LinkedIn profile, they got um, paid more, and they got uh, they got more promotions in their jobs in a five-year span. So good grammar can help you get a better job and get paid more. Good grammar can also help you get dates. So there was another study that I cite um, at the beginning of a section on how good grammar can make you irresistible to uh, attractive people or something like that. I forget how I phrased it. Um, (laughs) Where where they looked at match.com profiles and especially, so this was among men. that, that women found men more attractive um, the fewer grammar mistakes they had, and they would get more first dates if their Match.com profile had fewer grammar errors. So um, good grammar can help you get an, a, a job. It can help you in your love life. And those are just the facts. I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to opine something here, but I'm trying to use a little bit of data, and then I go into some ridiculous situations in each of the mini essays that I write about in the book. Yeah. And I think, I think you do a really good job with that because I, I agree with you. I, okay. I'm going to like take this little detour and ask you this question because I feel like, I feel like it's, it's germane to what you just said, but um, I don't want to get totally derailed onto it. But so especially as somebody who writes a grammar column and has written a book about grammar, do you, and I'm going to define this for, for other people. So there are prescriptivists who say, this is how the language works and this is how you should use it. And there are descriptivists who describe how people actually use it. Do you find yourself coming down more on one side than the other? Um, no, but I do uh, find myself explaining each camp. So for instance, 
um, whenever I talk about a new word that's in the dictionary, the dictionary, for instance, to go back to our, <laughs> we keep on talking about the dictionary. Okay. Man, this is just, this is switching from uh, creative, uh, your your podcast is going down a really nerdy, nerdy path that's right now. That's all right. Now. You know, um, people who are not so into dictionaries might learn to appreciate them at least a little bit more because of this episode. It's for real. So, so what the dictionary does, the dictionary reports how the language is being used. And so that's why... Uh, there are, you know, words like I don't know, I'm I'm blanking, but um, slang words will get added to the dictionary, and people will get all up in arms about it. But the dictionary basically just reports here's popular usage, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. The dictionary puts in words that are being used. Now, on the other hand, you have people who, um, you know, have kind of the the dusty, fusty, snarky uh, 1950s grammar books that say it must be done this way. And um, that's not for me either. That's the prescriptivist. And so I like to kind of stand in the middle of, okay, here's the rule. And maybe here's a, a couple different ways that a couple different groups look at the rules. Here's what I think. Um, and maybe it's fine to bend the rule, especially in casual conversation or casual writing. Um, but when it comes to something, again, more formal, um, let's go by the rules. Um, because if it, if you want to get hired or if you want to get, um, you know, if it's a grant application and you want to get money for your organization, then yeah, let's be formal. Um, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to put a tuxedo on your conversation with your, with your buddy, you know, (laughs) that's a great image. Does that make any sense? Great (laughs) image. Yeah. I mean, and I think I tend to be more on the prescriptivist side, but I also see a whole lot of merit in the descriptivist side. Because like you say, the dictionary, which the the controversy that I remember a couple years ago is I think that Merriam-Webster made their word of the year woot. And people were astonished that woot even was in the dictionary, much less that it would be the word of the year. Um, I could be wrong about the word of the year part, but I think that was how I found out about the whole thing but I listened to an interview a while back and I I'm suddenly blanking on her name but one of the um lexicographers that's the right word for dictionary people right um and she's written a book professional word nerds and I'm blanking on the name of the book too I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes though um where she was talking about like how she loves taking her kids places because especially when they're with her friends because she just listens to how they talk and she'll notice new phrases and new words and things like that and she'll ask them about them which of course starts to annoy them after a while but she just genuinely wants to know what's this word what's this phrase how do you use it what does it mean because she's always looking for things to go in the dictionary and and there's a really really valid point that says if a dictionary is going to be a useful reference work it has to be able to tell you about the word you just heard on the street that you didn't understand, not just about English as someone else thinks that it should be spoken. And I think, you know, I I love in in your book how you distinguish things like try and and try to, which is one of my bugaboos. So I was very excited when I saw that um, <laughs> or, you know, a lot. Should we talk about a lot? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about a lot. Let's talk about a lot, a lot, and a lot. Yeah, it made me think of the um, hyperbole and a half that talks about a lot, A-L-O-T, and and it invents this creature called a lot, and that, you know, this is what you're talking about if you use the word a lot as a single word to mean, you know, 
many, many things. It's this creature, the a lot. I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but um, I don't think I have. Oh, I'll have to send it to you. But but yeah, a lot of people, haha, there it is, um, <laughs> get get really, really mixed up on that one. And I think, and we can go more into a lot, a lot, and a lot, but um, I think some of it is that we, we read more ordinary speech now because of the internet, and that's why things get reinforced as, you know, like, all right as one word is another one that bugs me, that you know, really should be two words, but we've seen it so many times now as one word that to be more descriptivist about it, I I haven't looked it up in the dictionary lately, but it's probably in there with the single word spelling because so many people use it that way. So why not describe it? But it, it, you know, it kind of fits into that category. I think when we see it that way more often, when a certain usage gets, you know, more into the common, common usage to repeat myself there in two different contexts of usage, I, I think it becomes like reinforced that that's how it's spelled and that's how it starts to propagate. Yeah, so not to be confused with a lot, A-L-L-O-T, which means to give out or Correct. in a proportional way. Um, so A-L-O-T with no space, a lot is not a word. So, <laughs> but A space L-O-T means, you know, a large amount. However, I think it gets overused and there are much better words to use than rather than saying a lot. Um, it's kind of a bland word. Um, and actually it's, I think I, I use the word, it's a bland nothing burger, which also check your dictionary on that. Cause it's in there. I bet it is. It's in some dictionaries. Actually, I think it gave me the red, the red underlined squiggly thing when I wrote it, but then I, I found it in at least a dictionary. So, and it was on the internet, so it's gotta be real, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think I think actually a lot was in the section where you talked about Shakespeare making up words. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. he certainly did. And there's there's a big poster of all of the things that he made up that or or just actually I think it was mostly things that he made up. But um things that we say all the time that we don't realize came from Shakespeare. Yeah. And so just as, um, just as, um, a lot of, (laughs) there it is again, um, (laughs) several, um, quotes from people like Mark Twain out there get misattributed to Mark Twain. Now he said quite a few, um, interesting, noteworthy, memorable t-shirt worthy things. Um, there are quite a few lists of words out there on the internet of words Shakespeare coined or invented that he didn't actually invent. However, he did come up with quite a few um, new words or he got credit for, you know, putting them in print for the first time. Yep. Try to find some. I know salad days is on the list. Uh, Wormhole, skim milk, swagger, Mm -hmm. things like that. Swagger. When you think of swagger, you don't think of Shakespeare, but Shakespeare yeah. coined the term swagger. And now, how much do we hear swagger or even swag? Not to be confused with stuff we all get at at um, conferences, which <laughs> seem like a thing of the past at this point. Yeah, they really do. They really do. Remember but yeah, when we this... gather in groups of 11 or more? I know. We, we did this thing by greeting each other where we, we touched our hands together and moved them up and down. Yeah. It just seems like a foreign concept at this point. It really it really does. 
really, really does. Man. So you've also got things in here. Like I, I had to laugh when I got to interlude North Dakota, Israel. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this, Nancy. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to North Dakota? I have not ever been to North Dakota. Now, do you know anyone who is either from there or who lives there? You might. No, I know somebody from Nebraska, but not from North Dakota. <laughs> no, no. So here's the deal. Um, the same was true of me. I, I also know someone from Nebraska, um, but I had not been to North Dakota, nor had I known anyone who was from there or who lived there. However, my mother-in-law claimed to have gone, she went there for a wedding where she sang, it was like her college roommate or something and she was getting married and she to prove that North Dakota was real brought brought me back some socks that said North Dakota on them and I said yeah that's what you want me to think right <laughs> it's because there are socks that say North Dakota and have a bison on it that doesn't make North Dakota real You've a lot of people think it's kind of Byron Canada 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 <laughs> and then all of a sudden South Dakota which we know about because of Mount Rushmore and the Badlands obviously um so I decided you know what going to North Dakota. So my friend Tyler and I bought plane tickets. Now, we wanted to fly into North Dakota, but it is really expensive to fly to North Dakota because no one goes there. <laughs> so we, we flew to Minneapolis, and then we rented a car and drove three and a half hours to Fargo, which is just in the south and east corner. It's barely, barely in there on the Minnesota-North Dakota border. But we went to Fargo. I opened up my phone and Siri told me that I was in fact in North Dakota. And at that point when I saw it on the map and I experienced it, we talked to people at the tourism department and bought t-shirts and went around and we even went to a peewee ice hockey game. How North Dakota is that? So it is real and it is spectacular. <laughs> it makes me wonder if you've been spending a little too much time with Byron to think that North Dakota isn't real and have to go check it out. But I think it's cool that you did go check it out. It sounds like quite the little field trip. Well, I mean, so if you, uh, there, there is one interesting North Dakota conspiracy. If people want to Google this, um, type in North Dakota and like nuclear missile sites or something like that. I think there are more cows in North Dakota than there are people. So, I mean, there are a lot of weird things going on in North Dakota. Yeah, well, um, clearly, because your book also told me that I've always pronounced its capital incorrectly. South Dakota's uh, capital is Pier. Oh, see, I got my Dakotas mixed up. P-I-E-R-R-E. -E -E. North Dakotas is Bismarck um, for capital nerds, um, but it's pronounced Pier, South Dakota. And the reason I know this is because, so here's, here's how old I am. I, I am, I own the uh, soundtrack for Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego on cassette years mm -hmm. old. That's how old I am. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> talk about rabbit trail. So, these guys on their on their cassette, they probably had a CD, and we just <laughs> couldn't afford a CD player. We had a we had a tape player, and it's fine. Um, I, I don't still have it, but um, they had a song where they listed all the state capitals in uh, Rockapella, the mm -hmm. the house the house acapella group for Where in the World Is Carmen San Diego, and uh, they pronounced it Pierre as anyone would by just looking at it. Um, because of the French name Pierre, ha uh ha. -huh. Mm -hmm. um, but the then the governor at the time of South Dakota called them and, and like left a message on their answering machine because it's <laughs> 1993 and said um, it's actually pronounced Pierre um, 
And so they put that in the soundtrack itself. So there you go. Not that you were wondering, but it is pronounced Peer, South Dakota. And all the South Dakotans rejoiced. Yes, and the rest of us stand corrected. It, it's interesting <laughs> to me how, you know, I'm sure that that immediately marks you as not from South Dakota. As soon as they hear you say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm coming to South Dakota. I'm going to be in Pierre tomorrow. And they just go, you foreigner. Because well, it's the same thing with um, Nevada and Colorado. Now, I hear people say Nevada and Colorado, mm-hmm. but it's actually it's Nevada and Colorado. Now, these things don't probably really matter. Like if, if you were on Jeopardy and you said one thing, they'd probably give you credit for, you, you know, they knew what you meant. Um, but these things could matter. You know, if you're having a big uh, merger meeting with someone in Colorado and you're wanting to make a great impression on them and you said, Hey, how are things in Colorado? Um, that's a strike, you know. So you want to yeah. get it right. These regional things are interesting. There's a there's a town in Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma, um, spelled M I A M I. Miami in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. But it's actually pronounced Miami. Now that's weird, and it still seems wrong. It sounds wrong when I said it, but that's how it's that's how it's pronounced. So if you ever go to Miami, Oklahoma. Um, it's not Miami. Yeah, and I'm from central Pennsylvania originally. I grew up in York, which is right across the river from Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And we always knew when people were not from central Pennsylvania because they would say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming down to Lancaster. And like, no, 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 you're not. Right. No, you're a foreigner. You're coming to Lancaster. In fact, a couple of years ago, a guy that I worked with moved from central New Jersey to Lancaster and another one of my friends at work is is also from the same area as I am and and we just looked at each other we're like we're gonna have to teach him how to say Lancaster yeah if we don't teach him how to say Lancaster everybody's just gonna immediately label him and they will you know they'll just kind of look at you and go yeah you you're not from around here are (laughs) you yeah you're new you're new around here aren't you yeah you're you're new and we're automatically suspicious of you whereas if you know how to say Lancaster you'll you know it sounds like such a ridiculous thing but it does make a difference so I think I think what we're tapping into is both of us have this um not not really underlying also like this secondary nerddom of geography <laughs> and um u.s cities but yeah you know guilty as charged weird little regionalisms they're, they're really interesting they really are things you wouldn't expect but they're they're big hallmarks to people yeah, depending so on one, your location so one, one thing i actually talked about in the book and this is totally totally relevant here is at the grocery store first of all we have we have um, Meyer grocery stores around here. Mm-hmm. I think they started in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But I love that their checkout line says 15 items or fewer yes. right? instead of 15 items or less. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but that's not the point I was trying to make. But um, why do people add unnecessary S's to the end of grocery stores? So I'm going to go to Kroger's or Walmart's or Meyer's or I've even heard uh, recently Aldi's now there's not an S on the end there. Some of the some of these places did start out as, um, you know, Myers General Store or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was a, you know, Fred Meyer was the guy who started Meyer and it had an apostrophe S at some point. But um, 
it is something that is like nails on a chalkboard to me, even even though I just talked about how how laid back and Matthew McConaughey I am about <laughs> um, casual grammar. Like, all right, all right, all right. But, man, if someone adds an S, I'll be like, hey, it's Aldi, man. Like, <laughs> there is no S on the end of that sign. Um, yeah. But people add it, and um, I, just a thing that people do. They do, and you know, I have a feeling that it's like a linguistic relic from the days when it was shortened from somebody's name. And yet, you're right; we don't say I'm going to Targets, we don't say I'm right. going to Walmart's. It's... Yes, actually, my my some of my uh, relatives in Oklahoma definitely say Walmart's. Really? Um, yeah, they absolutely do, and so. Um, if you rewind in history, Sam Walton, we know started Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the original name of his store was like Walton's five and dime or something like mm-hmm. that. It was never, it was never Walmart's. Um, and so I think it's just a thing people do just like in, um, in Indiana. Oh, what, what do people say in Indiana? That is crazy. Oh, they, they take out, uh, the verb to be, and they, they say, um, my clothes needs washed, or my, my shirt needs washed, or the lawn needs mowed. People in Pennsylvania do that too. Yeah, so so I do I do write again in the book about you know what happened to to be, and we we touch on Shakespeare a little bit because obviously the famous to be or uh, not to be. That's the question. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me with the grocery store thing. We have a. There's a a New York store that has come into New Jersey and Pennsylvania in the last 20 years or so called Wegmans. Sure. That's the Wegman family. There's no apostrophe in the name. It's just Wegman with an S on the end of it. And I haven't thought about it really for quite a while because I think I'm just so used to it now. But, But yeah, is that... It's well, almost like they just decided this is what everybody's going to call it, so this is what we'll call it too. Yeah, so I, I, I haven't thought about Wegmans, but um, think about the farmer's market for a second. Now, is there an apostrophe in, between the R and the S in farmer's and farmer's market? Or does it go after the S? Or is there an apostrophe at all? Right. So the market, the market does not belong to the farmers, but it is a market where the farmers come. And so... Technically, farmers market does not need an apostrophe. Right. So, again, these are the, these are the little things that I think can incrementally, very small increments, make your life a little better. Um, just like uh, I think I wrote about, and this is just a weird homeowner thing, but um, we we had a uh, kitchen faucet that just the the pressure was bad and it was frustrating. Now I changed out the filters and stuff and it was still cruddy. And then, so I just said, forget it. I'm going to buy a new faucet with a Mm -hmm. sprayer, with a sprayer built into the, to the, I don't know my, uh, anatomy of, of a sink. But anyway, so like (laughs) the thing where the water comes out, the spout has a pull out sprayer, right? Mm -hmm. So I bought a new one. Um, and it is awesome, and I haven't had to change the filter or anything like that. The water pressure is solid, and that made my life about, I don't know, 3 or 4% better. Now, it's little things like that that add up, especially in times when we are at home a lot, you know, do a little little project, and that'll make your life a little bit better, and you don't realize until it is better um, how much you have needed that thing in your life. I think 
The same goes for proper grammar, punctuation, and even saying cities and states the right way. <laughs> I think we don't realize it until until we've achieved it. But once we look back and see how far we've come, we go, man. Now, that's instantly, as a, as a judgy person, naturally, that's where my superior superiority complex comes in. And I'm like, well, therefore, I'm better than everyone else. And that is the wrong path to go down, to end a thought in a preposition. And... <laughs> And we need to be careful to not think that we're better than everyone else just because we have achieved some kind of high and mighty good grammar status. And so that is one of the themes on the of, of the book, just as much as it is to have good grammar, is to don't be a jerk. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a lesson that we all could use in an age of social media and hyper polarization. Just don't be a jerk. Just be a nice person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would throw in there judgment is optional. Exactly. You, know, you really, you know, you might be better at, at grammar than most people, but I guarantee you that the people whose grammar you're criticizing are, criti- you know, judging you for not being able to change a spare tire or, you know, not knowing how to wire an electrical outlet or something like that. There's totally. Everybody's yeah. got the stuff that they're good at and the stuff that they're not so good at. And isn't that great? It means I don't know how to fi- need to know how to fix my car engine because there's somebody out there who will do it. And that guy, if he's not that good at grammar, that's OK. I can take care of it for him. It all it all balances out. And if we look at it that way, I think it's a whole lot healthier. Absolutely. And and what we're finding out right now is how much we need certain people. Uh, you know, yes. it does take all types. We, we need people who work at grocery stores. We need people who work at restaurants, you know, and even if it's in a drive-through capacity or takeout mm-hmm. capacity, like those people are really important right now. And, you know, obviously doctors and nurses and pharmacists, like we need we need them, but we're finding out these um, really specific job roles that have been overlooked. And it's like, man, you guys are integral. So, yeah, yeah, we all need to take care of each other and treat each other, you know, just as well as if, you know, the queen's coming to dinner or whoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could definitely use a lot more of that. A whole lot yeah. more of that. Remembering and co- Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, re- remembering and compassion and appreciation for each other, I think, is is really key. We're learning right now. For sure. So, all right. Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to say that this really is a fun book. If you're if you're looking for something to give you a little perspective on the English language that you might have either not gotten in high school because your English teacher was monstrous in the grammar units or have forgotten since then, or, or just a fun read. Good grammar is the life of the party is, is a very good choice for that. And I'm just wondering, like if there was one thing that you would, one, one grammar suggestion that you would make to people, the the biggest thing on your list, the one change that they should make or, or be more consistent about you have something. Yep, I am. I am right there on it. So, for me, apostrophes. Um, yes. <laughs> apostrophes. Uh, they are like sentence confetti, right? Now, they're uh, the uh, an apostrophe in the right place. It just adds fun flair to your sentence. Now, a misplaced apostrophe is like um, laughing at a funeral. Like it's inappropriate, and you can't undo it. Um, 
or maybe it, yeah, maybe it's like confetti at a funeral. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Unless it's in you're the wrong the, place. It's in the wrong place. So here's the big thing. When you are writing your holiday or Christmas card, um, say happy holidays from the Honeycuts. There's no apostrophe necessary. It is, um, you know, there's four of us, so it's plural Honeycuts. It's not the Honeycuts boat. Um, it's happy birth, or, you know, ha- happy holidays from the Honeycuts. No apostrophe necessary. And that drives me crazy. Autocorrect will incorrectly autocorrect it to add, you know, I hate Mondays, and it'll put an apostrophe S in there. So if Garfield were texting, um, he would have a field day of bad grammar with autocorrect because it would put an apostrophe mm-hmm. in Mondays. So I just I just went from holiday cards to how Siri and autocorrect are <laughs> are making us uh, worse. The robots are making us dumber, but we already knew that, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. All righty. So put your apostrophes in the right place. Yeah, so if, if, if graduation is a thing this year, um, this book makes a great graduation gift. Um, whether you're mailing that to someone that you can't um, hug or um, if you, you know, want to buy the ebook, I'm sure there's a way to buy an ebook for someone. But initially I was thinking, man, you know, May 1st, I'm going to launch it May 1st because this is a great grad gift for high school or college grads. But it's good if you're, if you're already a word nerd or if you're just kind of a nerd or want to read something that's interesting that hopefully will help you out about three or four percent. Yep. It's a good read. All right. Well, thank you so much, Curtis. This has been much fun. Thanks, Nancy. That's our episode. I hope you have a greater appreciation for the English language than you did an hour ago. Thanks again to Curtis Honeycutt for joining me. You can find links to everything we mentioned in the show notes at fycuriosity.com. If you know someone who would appreciate this episode, please pass it on. Thanks. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.